Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. Your best business investment is now more affordable than ever. Go to 99designs.com slash smart to get a $99 power pack of services for free. A power pack upgrade makes your design contest stand out from the crowd, resulting in nearly 200% more designs for you. Check it out at 99designs.com slash smart. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Welcome smartpeoplepodcast.com. To Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. How you guys doing today? Chris and John here as usual, and another really exciting episode. I love finding these, I don't want to call them diamonds in the rough because this book is pretty popular and this author is fairly well known. He's written in a number of places, but it's a new perspective on something we have all heard many things about over the past decade or more, and that's global warming. Today we're speaking with Mackenzie Funk. Mackenzie recently wrote a book called Windfall, The Booming Business of Global Warming, which is extremely interesting given that it's the booming business of global warming. In it, he travels to a number of different countries all over the world, meeting with corporations, individuals, and he learns about how people are profiting from global warming. They're creating businesses to take advantage of the shifts in our resources our landscape, and what the future is going to look like. It will definitely enlighten and open your eyes. Going to turn it over to Mackenzie here in a second. Mackenzie Funk is a fantastic writer. He is a National Magazine Award finalist and former Knight Wallace Fellow. 
His writing has appeared in places such as Harper's, National Geographic, Outside, Rolling Stone, Bloomberg, The New York Times. You know the list. He's also the founding member of DECA, a really interesting global journalism cooperative. As always, guys, we love to hear from you. Connect with us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Shoot us an email on Twitter. We're at smartpeoplepod. Love to hear from you. We've been getting some fantastic emails. If you enjoy the show, the easiest thing you can do to support us is go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We really appreciate it. And as always, we hope you enjoy this episode with Mackenzie Funk. Mackenzie, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. This is a, a, a subject that I am extremely interested in, have been for years for a number of reasons. And I actually work for a nonprofit that deals with mostly with food, but we look a lot at the environment and its impact, uh, the food industry's impact on sustainability. So uh, when, I, when I read your book, Windfall, and when I learned more about what you do, I was like, this is a fantastic take on a subject that's in the news. So I definitely want to get into that. But prior to doing that, I want to learn a little bit more about how you came to write this book, especially in the interesting way that you did so. I came at it, I suppose, as someone who wasn't particularly interested in climate change before starting the project. So maybe that's that's part of it. I'm interested in people all over the world. I, my background was just as a, as a journalist, a freelance magazine journalist. And I'd I'd been starting to write for Harper's Magazine. I had done a previous story on internet addiction in China where I pretended to be a Chinese internet addict. Well, actually, not the Chinese part. Uh, <laughs> I pretended to be an internet addict, and um, and I checked myself into this clinic in Beijing and just got the same treatment. I didn't do the IV drip that they did, and I spit out all the medicine they gave me, but I participated in the the basketball games that were to force force us to break our internet addiction and other things like that, all the exercise. And so I, and that was my first story for Harper's. And they said, well, would you like to do another one? And I, I said, sure. And I started poking around for something that would be weird, first of all, <laughs> uh, human and and maybe funny. I like stories that are funny and, and really and people are funny. So, you know, all those things you don't think of them when you think climate change. You don't think human necessarily except for the cause. And you certainly don't think funny. And you don't even always think weird except sort of in a cosmic sense. But I got this email. I was living in New York City at the time, and I got this email that was like a some sort of environmental news network, I think is what it was. They sent out a, a weekly blast of environmental news. And it was about the Canadian military mission to the Northwest Passage to claim it for Canada. And I thought, oh, that's weird. You know, it's Canadians with guns. That's weird. Hmm. It's claiming the Northwest Passage, which I didn't know was under dispute, and why would anybody want it? And then it, of course, was connected to climate change. This was 2006 and 2007 is when I really got into the story. And this is when, you know, an inconvenient truth was out, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had its big report. And there's another thing called the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change that talked about the impact of all this. And I and and so I went up with the Canadian military on their mission, and that's how I got interested in the topic. That's really a, a, an eclectic background and an interesting way of getting there. And I love the fact you bring the journalistic point of view to so many of your topics, especially this one, which, as you mentioned, uh, people think of it in similar terms all the time, right? There's there's climate change or for the 0.01% of the world that doesn't believe there's climate change. 
this is happening and here's how it's destroying things. And the take you have on it is how some people are profiting from it. And where did that idea even come from? Because that's not a common understanding. You must have seen the seed somewhere. Well, that was it. I, I saw the seed in Canada on this trip. Huh. And this was, so why did they want the Northwest Passage? And, you know, the whole reason I went up there was that Canada and other nations were recognizing that the ice was melting. And if the ice was melting, there was something to go get. And in this case, it was ownership of the Northwest Passage and control of the shipping lanes connected to it and, and through it. And related to it is the, all the oil and gas up in the Arctic. Some think it's the sort of biggest untapped reserve of oil and gas in on the planet. And I think that that may be true of at least conventional varieties. You know, companies like Shell have said that they're going to get most of their crude oil from the Arctic by, you know, within a generation. And so I saw this was the reaction to climate change, not, you know, let's let's drive smaller cars or or insulate our homes, but let's go get what the icy the melting ice has has created. And that's just a totally one hundred percent different different reaction. And the rest of the book is really just different ways people are doing the same thing. And they're looking at climate change and saying, what's in it for me? Or, or at the very least, how can I protect me and mine from the worst of this? And it's about the imbalances in a world when, you know, parts of the world will, will actually maybe be more habitable. It might be easier to drill for oil and gas. They might actually do slightly better with climate change. The vast majority will not, but at least the rich parts will be able to build themselves a wall or at least better, better prepared to build themselves a wall. And so I, that's what I came to see was people trying to make money off it or and prepare for this future as opposed to try to stop it. And did this was this a depressing story to write? Did it make you question our morals as a being, as a society, where we take this potentially catastrophic event or occurrence and just look at the short term of how we can profit monetarily from it? Yeah, totally. Well, that's that was what... I mean, the Canadians were the perfect case that, you know, they're, they're good. I like Canadians. Yeah. And, and that these people, they were up there like shooting guns, you know, the, the opening scene in the book and, and for the story that launched the book was, was on this ship, military ship at the entrance to the Northwest Passage. And we're just doing these live fire demos, you know, pumping lead into the Arctic Ocean to show how, how tough they were and how this part of the Arctic was going to be theirs. I mean, that's just really weird behavior. And that, that this, you know, arguably the biggest thing humankind has ever done would be climate change. You know, the pyramids were big. Uh, space is big. Uh, getting to space is big, but we're actually changing the face of the planet. That this is how a large portion of humanity is reacting to this thing we've done is a little bit scary. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, I'm, I like people. <laughs> I'm sort of positive guy. And unfortunately, I'm someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest aside from forest fires, which are a real and growing threat here and, and the death of the shellfish industry and stuff like that, I'm not going to get it as bad as the rest of the world when it comes to climate change. Mm-hmm. My kids probably won't. And so, yeah, you worry about humanity quite a bit. And yet, you know, when I spent time with the people going to these places, doing these things, I was surprised at how I didn't dislike any of them, you know, with very... You know, as a person-to-person level, I liked all these people. I didn't think the problem was that the people were necessarily evil. You know, it could be myopia. It could be, you know, different values, you know, different one particular libertarian uh, 
hedge fund manager who was buying up farmland in Africa, partnering with a uh, pretty scary uh, general in South Sudan. You know, a, on the face of it, what he was doing was was scary to everyone. And, and yet I can tell you the guy lived by a moral code, believed in it, and was ethical in, in his way. And so I, even that, in a, on a human level, I can't say this was a bad guy doing bad things. I, I can say that as humans, we all fall back on a sort of set stock responses, and some of those are, are off. But it's not necessarily about us being any more or less evil than we've always known we are. Well, could you say that was just a good guy doing bad things? I mean, especially when you say he's a hedge fund manager, I can guarantee you he has more money than is ever necessary in a lifetime. I don't understand. I mean, what's the mentality? Is it if I don't do it, someone else will, so I might as well? It's deeper than that. It's more that by creating a business that is only for making money, we will make a better world. I mean, you know, it's, it's Ayn Rand. It's, uh, it's thinking that capitalism is, does work and that capitalism is the answer for Africa and everywhere else and that capitalism may be the answer for climate change or the food crises or water crises that come with it, that if we can apply market principles to this or that situation, the market will solve it. I don't believe that personally. And I think, in fact, the book is a prolonged argument against that worldview. But I don't think that it was mere greed that that has these people subscribing to it. I think, I think it was honest. I think it was, you know, it was that plus, you know, the the excitement of being, you know, hobnobbing with South Sudanese generals as opposed to doing currency trade currency trading for Solomon Brothers. Sure. You know, there's there's a personal thing. It's a lot it's a lot cooler to fly to South Sudan and feel like you're doing something than it is to be sitting in an office just doing whatever you do. You, you may know better than I do what, what happens in, in finance offices. But I do. It's pretty damn boring. So yeah. maybe that is why. I mean, if I had my choice, eh, maybe I'm looking at myself a little different. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it was the, the feeling of going out and, and making something and doing something, which is, a I think, a, a laudable thing in people and, and in, in all people. I I just happen to disagree that, that the market solves all. And I think that that what I found is that when there are these imbalances, when there's something like climate change, which will arguably make some of the rich richer and the poor all that much poorer, it just makes them worse. Instantly I go to, and I'm not claiming to be this morally righteous person. I'm just, and in a certain situation, perhaps I would act differently. Okay. But just learning about it, I'm thinking, did you run into anybody who their thought was, this is inevitable, I'm going to profit from it in order to help fix the crisis as I can. So make money to fix it as opposed to just make money for their own gain. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that was in fact, most of them, you know, how, how heartfelt that is, how much that's just gloss is something that maybe only they can answer. Hmm. But I can, I can say that there's another hedge fund I talked to that, that buys up water rights is uh, I didn't know before I started this project in the American West and places like Australia, Chile, parts of China, Spain, you can separate a land title from a water title. You can go buy a, buy a piece of property, and you can keep the land, and you can sell the water that comes with it, or or maybe they were separate long ago. You can trade them just like like pieces of property or like like stocks in Australia. There's almost like a stock exchange where there's there's water being traded up and down. They're equivalent of the Colorado River system, and as you can imagine, 
if uh, you know what flows downhill, well, water flows uphill to money. That's the a famous line from Cadillac Desert. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You know, the those who have the money are able to buy up the water rights and better survive these droughts. And, of course, during the droughts and as climate change goes forward, water is worth more. And the hedge fund managers who are part of this system, you know, they're buying up they're buying up rights in Australia. They're buying up rights in the American West. And they feel they're doing something that's necessary. They're causing water to have a, a real price. It's not just something we can just turn on the taps and throw away. And and there is something compelling about that, saying, you know, price water what it's worth and we won't start, you know, we won't waste as much of it. And, you know, I, I actually, again, these were strong pro-market guys and I respect that they believe in what they're doing and that they believe it will help. I, I wouldn't, I, I really do believe that. Um, I don't necessarily agree, again, that, that the market's going to solve all, but I don't doubt their motives. Yeah, actually, I can say there is some interesting, compelling argument and thought, especially behind that idea of putting a price on water. I just read this article about gray water and uh, a company in California. There's a lot of regulations in California behind using gray water, mostly old regulations because they either didn't understand it or the safety issues at the time. But there's a company who's going into homes, installing gray water catches in, in different areas, regardless of the legalities. And it, it was just really interesting. And it made me think, why, why don't we do this more often? It's such an <laughs> obvious, I mean, to, to take your bath water and use it to uh, water your plants as opposed to just go to the drain. I mean, that's super obvious. And I, I don't know. Yeah, when, when I buy a house, I'm putting it in. That's all I do now. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, you know, interesting case. You know, San Diego was a point of interest, not not just because my brother-in-law lives there and this hedge fund happens to be based there, but because they're one of the cities in this country that has the worst water problems, and yet they resisted for a very long time doing the uh, toilet to tap system. You know, mm-hmm. reusing sewage just because nobody wants to drink poop. Right, and I'm. I'm with that, but <laughs> good. I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, but of course, you know, scientifically, it's they treat it. Of course, it's fine to drink. Sure. Everyone knows it. It was just it just seemed gross, so nobody wanted to do it. And San Diego was able to put up some of the money to do this project that effectively took money or took water from Mexico to give it to San Diego. This is the lining project of the All American Canal which was a canal just on the U.S. side of the border, comes off the Colorado River and, and goes toward coastal California. And it had a, a dirt on had a dirt lining. It wasn't paved. And so water was seeping through the bottom of it and bubbling up in Mexico. By law, it was our water. And, in fact, Mexican farmers were using it. And the whole industry up in, in Mexicali was based around having this really nice water bubbling up. And San Diego and, and others use money to use, you know, the money they had to finally pave that canal in recent years. I think finished in 2010 and, and already the, the water stopping bubbling up in Mexico. And this was something that was funded and paid for and done before they finally said, okay, we'll do toilet to tap. You know, they were literally taking the money. Wow. They're taking the water as opposed to voting in this, this toilet thing. And so, yeah, I think yeah, things, things like that were frustrating to me and, and I, I did see, well, you know, if if people aren't wasting water, and if they're if they are reusing it, and if there is a price to it, there, I think that's a 
it's a decent argument. Sure. It's, I don't have my head around it entirely. Right. Yeah. But and I think that's the point of your book, this podcast. I mean, talk in, in general, educating people or curiosity might not be getting the answer, but it's at least getting different perspectives. And I mm-hmm. think that absolutely changes the way that from day to day, uh, each person might live and each person individually, when you when you put them together, we can we can change some of these things. So it's really about educating and informing. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about Windfall that I was hoping you could get into a little bit more. You mentioned you weren't a, a super interested in climate change prior to this. So no, you, no. You were, you're coming at it, or you were coming at it, from a viewpoint that most of us listening probably are. We know what it is. We know a little bit about it. But uh, how much have we dove into it? You know, How much have we researched it? So I'm interested to see what you learned about it in this crash course you took? You know, one thing I didn't do was pretend I was going to get a PhD in climate science or really learn much more than, you know, any any layman could do with with a few weeks or a month of reading about climate change on terms of in terms of the science. What I spent a lot more time on was who's paying attention to the science, which is to say who in the military or intelligence establishment in various countries is doing that like how are they thinking strategically about climate change and what are they what's their reaction and that that for me was incredibly interesting and not talked about enough um the i've mentioned shell in the arctic you know for a giant oil company you wouldn't think they would be early to believing in climate change but they were uh, and they have these these futurists who work for them and they're they're called scenario planners they their job is to come up with two or three alternate stories about the future, what it could be like in 10 or 15 or 20 years, tell those stories in a believable way and have the company prepare for them. As part of this process, years ago, they said, you know, climate change is probably real, so let's game this out. And and for that reason, they were somewhat early to say, you know, climate change is, is a problem. They said this publicly. We would like to avert it if we can. And they went for a while more heavily into gas, uh, natural gas, and they did a little bit of some wind projects. They still have some other projects like that. And they also were, of course, moving into the Arctic because they believed enough in climate change to believe the ice was going to pull back. Um, the military, uh, U.S. military, British military, even even Indian military, as far as I understand it, all have looked at climate changes as a, uh, oh, what, what's the term here? threat multiplier. It's not that climate change is necessarily going to cause new conflicts. It's not like, you know, people talked about the war for the Arctic for a while, like we're all going to fight over that oil up there. You talk to any, anyone in the military, they're like, no, it's not going to happen. But what it will do is exacerbate existing conflicts insofar as they're over food shortages or water shortages. It will make migration pressures all the much worse in places where they've, maybe there already is migration uh, a good example would be Bangladesh to India. There's a ton of there's a ton of migration across the border there. India's building a giant border fence around Bangladesh for that reason. It's nearly complete. I think it's the longest in the world at, at uh, maybe 1,500 kilo- uh, miles, 2,500 kilometers. And that's going to be more and more as Bangladesh goes underwater and things like that. So you know the military is looking at strategically. Um, other other businesses are doing the same. And I, I found that intriguing, and that's the most important part of climate change for the rest of us is to realize that that the smart 
people in the in the world, which is to say, the smart and sort of agnostic people, Wall Street, uh, military, people who need to understand the future to either uh, fight better in it or protect it from fights or make money off it, have bought into the idea of climate change. It's the politicians who have not. Well, and that's that's really interesting because I had that note written down. I'd love to get your perspective on this. Have the politicians really not bought in or is it solely based on they're trying to market to their constituents just to get reelected? And then in the same token, uh, these these people that are hoping to profit from climate change, obviously they believe it to be true, but are they actually lobbying for or marketing to the world that it's not happening so that we continue to maybe hasten the process, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I'll take the second question first, <laughs> which is to say, is anyone sort of in on the secret of climate change, but, but uh, hedging against it, betting against it, like, like some places work in, accused of in the uh, in the financial crisis with sure. the housing market you know yep certain hedge funds saw it coming certain banks saw it coming and rather than rather than say hey everyone we've got a we've got a bubble here they just kept quiet and made a ton of money by betting on failure exactly so the question is are people betting on failure with climate change and not being too loud about it i don't know and i looked of course very hard and very long to see if this was the case and i'm not i'm not sure it is Fully, you could say that again. Shell has played both sides of it in that they've funded uh, politicians who deny climate science, and at the same time, Shell was among those lobbying for for the passage of a climate bill in the in the Senate and in, in House. Uh, they were doing so because they were heavier in natural gas than they were in oil, and of course, better off in terms of how much carbon was in their fuels than was the coal industry. So they thought, you know, if you're not at the dinner table, you're on the plate, that kind of thing. And we might as well be at the table and lobby as best we can. But I don't know of anyone anymore, and this is in part because it's totally opaque and I haven't fully followed it, who is both funding hardcore climate denial and positioning themselves to make money off it. You could accuse uh, Exxon of this, were they still clearly funding climate denial, but I'm not sure that they are. In fact, there are reports that all of that has stopped. And now if you go to Exxon's website, you see that they agree that climate change is a problem and we should do something about it. They hmm. say it right there on the website. Wow. So no longer is the sort of the marquee example of, of oil company funding denial true. Um, the Koch brothers, as far as I know, have no pro-climate bets. They just are funding denial. And I think that's that has more to do with your first question, which is why are politicians and people hanging on to this idea of denial? As for politicians, I think it's two things. Yeah, one, it's pandering to voters, and in some cases it's heartfelt. Um, the pandering to voters part, you can see clearly in a lot of politicians, uh, mostly on the Republican side, who were, if not 100% progressive on climate change, or shall we say... Uh, 100% believing in the science, uh, we're, we're right there with, you know, the Democrats who are clearly no better in, in, in a lot of ways at, at saying, yes, this is real and we should do something about it. You know, John McCain's a great example of someone who came out and, you know, sponsored a bill and said, this is bad for the military. Climate change is bad for the military. There've been lots of, lots on the, on both sides who've done this. And 
people like McCain, you know, he's he's been a lot quieter about climate change. Uh, Newt Gingrich, you know, you've, you've seen major flip flops with him. You know, there was a time he he did a commercial with Pelosi, was it, where he where he said climate change is something we need to stop, and then of course he was saying it's all a plot. Uh, four or five years later, so yeah, there's there's some pandering, but I you know that's that's politics. I, this is not again a Republican. Democrat thing because there's plenty of pandering on the on the Democrat side. Sure, I think um, what's been going on for the most part with denial is, is that you believe what you want to believe. You don't actually look at the you don't go and get all the data and look it up. And if you look it up, you look for things that that put your position in a better light. Uh, funny thing from social science is that there's a strange curve with knowledge of climate science among deniers. Those who deny science most strongly are some of those who are best versed in it. Like I would hate to go toe to toe with any of these guys as to whether climate change is real because they know the the facts and figures so many times better than I do. They know the studies. They know where the holes are. They know where the questions are. And they've studied as much as they can. But, But like any of us, they've studied it looking for anything they can poke holes in. Exactly. And, but, you know... It's not like all of us have sat down with a big ream of climate papers and said, let's look through this and then come up with our positions. It's much more that all of us come with our own political baggage and beliefs about how the world should be. And those are what correlate most with whether you believe in climate science or not. And that what goes with that is just saying, hey, this is real, this is real, this is real, this is real, to such people isn't going to do a thing. You know, you're not, you can't fight, you can't fight denial with papers anymore, not when there've been enough papers to prove to anyone that climate change is real if they're if they're looking at it with a with an open heart shall we say and now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support smart people podcast if you've been listening to the show you know that 99designs is the place to go to get a logo design but did you know you can actually get anything designed through their marketplace websites book covers t-shirts car wraps you name it 99designs is the perfect place to get a design you love. You'll receive professional and high-quality results from dozens of designers competing for your business. To make it even more perfect, there's a 100% money-back guarantee. We're super excited because we used 99designs to run a design contest for a laptop sticker for the podcast. We received so many amazing submissions, but we're more than excited to get the final sticker out to our listeners. Head over to 99designs.com slash smart to get access to over 310,000 graphic designers. Don't forget, when you use our link, 99designs.com slash smart, you'll get a $99 power pack of services for free. We thank you in advance for supporting our awesome sponsor, 99designs. If you don't have your own website these days, you're already a few steps behind. That's like being the guy who waits until just before the snowstorm hits to go to the grocery store, and then he wonders why they're already out of eggs, milk, and toilet paper. Don't be that guy. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com smartpeople. And be sure to use the offer code EXPERT at checkout to get 10% off. Here's the thing, I know most of you want to have a website of some sort, but creating a website can seem a bit daunting. 
Trust me, I know I'm just like you. I don't know the first thing about websites or coding or how to put them together. However, I've now built three websites using Squarespace. Two were for friends of mine and they were really happy about it. Building a website with Squarespace is simple because you can drag and drop the content. You can pick from a number of professional designs. Plans start at only $8 a month and that includes a free domain name. So start a trial now with no credit card required. And when you do decide to sign up, Make sure you go to squarespace.com slash smart people and use the offer code expert to get 10% off. Remember, that's squarespace.com slash smart people and utilize the offer code expert at checkout. I agree with you. And, I, you know, we've been often accused of being fairly leftist or uh, liberal on the show. And so I, I try to steer away from that and just let the guests take it where they may. And I, I don't even mean to turn into that. It's more a, an, an interest or a confusion on if you have companies such as Exxon, Shell, I mean, just those two, the Koch brothers, the amount of money they have is astronomical, I mean, mm-hmm. astronomical. And, and then, okay, they, capitalism tends to skew things. So that might be a little tough, but then you have the government. And I, I look at when we said we're going to put a man on the moon and then did so within eight years or whatever it was because we, we put the dedicated resources there. And I just wonder if you have all of these resources that realize it's there, why are they saying how do we profit as opposed to how do we stop it? Well, I mean, I think in the case of Shell or Exxon in particular, if they're too loudly saying, yes, let's stop burning all this, they, you know, their their value goes to zero. I mean, yeah. so much of an oil company's value is based on its, you know, its the number of barrels of oil it can claim is in its reserves. I can't remember the exact term here, but you know, basically, it's proven reserves. I believe, you know, as an oil company, the main thing you want to do, aside from producing oil and selling it, is finding, exploring new oil and adding to your reserves so you can say, look, we've got enough to keep on going. So you know, an oil company is a really interesting thing because they're they're operating on these on these multiple tracks. They've got to go and find this stuff. They've got to produce it. Then many of them are, are selling it even at the, at the pump level, which is an interesting business. I mean, very few things are that vertically integrated anymore, shall we say. So for them to say, we need to stop this, unless they're really tricky about it, part of stopping it is saying, we need to keep all these barrels of oil that we're claiming on our financial sheets in the ground. And if they say anything that says that, they're sunk. So, yeah, they have the money to come up with alternative energies, but that, you know, they're also shooting themselves in the foot financially. Yeah. And and I think that's, you know, it's inevitable. I think that any investor who who wants to leave their money in these big oil companies long term is, is not smart. I mean, I just think that eventually that's going to happen, whether they, they push this process themselves or not. But they're also banking, I mean, talking about Shell's futurism, they're also banking on an incredible growth in energy use globally. You know, they're looking at China's growth and everywhere else and saying, we're not going to really use less energy. And in fact, we need alternative energy, not just to cut our carbon, but we need it to meet the energy demands that are coming. So they're, they, they don't think that the world's going to stop doing this anytime soon. And, and to be fair to them, they think that in part because of the rest of us. They think the rest of us are not politically uh, worked up enough to really do strong carbon rules, and they, you know, they're betting on that. Yeah, and you know, once you mention that, I mean, I realize I'm looking at it from such a, 
I don't know, utopian perspective and just it doesn't make sense. I, I get that. I'm, I'm not trying to say be you know anti-capitalist or whatever and well and, yeah it doesn't it doesn't make sense the either way either right you know, and it doesn't make sense to keep on burning this and, and raise the planet's temperature to six degrees it's it actually doesn't make sense at all so, yeah, so yeah. believe me and then it's not but, that one makes sense and the other doesn't right well and then in the same token people could say yeah but how much energy do you use do you drive an electric car do you and and sure i'm i'm just as much at fault as the next guy and i go to shell to fill up my car you know which gets 19 miles to the gallon or whatever so who am i to say uh it's on them when i'm the one paying at the pump so you know it's a yeah. very interesting topic one of the things we haven't really touched on and and i meant to it's just you can tend to go down a rabbit hole when you're talking about this is the actual uh to going into some of the stories and some of the ways people are currently profiting, planning on profiting. I know that's the the bread and butter of your book. You do such a great job telling these stories. It's the way I like to read nonfiction because it's fun, entertaining. It, it, you, you can see the picture. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about you know some interesting ways you fi- found out and things you discovered on how people are, are currently profiting or planning to profit off of global warming. Oh, sure. Well, the, the book is split into three main parts uh, that would be melt drought and deluge and those were chosen because you know the you can look at climate change it's going to cause three things we're going to have less ice on land or on the sea ice up in the arctic and we're going to have drought you know basically there's going to be more water and less water but there's going to be drought all over the place and and with that sort of rising temperatures and then deluge which is mostly i'm talking about sea level rise but also storm surges and hurricanes and and of course rivers are going to have more water in them too and pretty much wherever there's going to be an effect of climate change someone's planning to make money off it and when it's melted it's the things we've talked about it's it's shipping lanes up in the arctic it's oil and gas up in the arctic it's mining you know greenland which is a colony of denmark is planning to go independent it's planning to do this because it will be able to pay its own way with oil and gas reserves and zinc and gold and uranium and rare earth minerals, all of which are being revealed as the ice melts or at least made easier to get because of shipping lanes. I, I visited one mine that was a zinc mine, and they'd reopened it mainly because a glacier had pulled back and they found a giant deposit of zinc right at the foot of the former glacier. In when it comes to drought, you know, we've talked about people trying to make money off of water rights, buying and selling water like it's a any other commodity, um, farmland, people trying to buy up farmland in Africa in particular, but also Brazil uh, until recent laws, Ukraine until recent fighting, uh, Cambodia, uh, Romania, you know, all over anywhere that farmland is relatively cheap and likely not to go, not likely to get too dry. If there's a good water source, people think that food prices are going to go up. So buy farmland and you can grow food and make money. And firefighting, you know, I'm, I'm embedded with some private firefighters working for insurance companies in Los Angeles, you know, did a ride along as we snuck past police lines and in the firefighting industry, which a lot is, is for profit is growing quite a bit. You know, it's, it's the, it's the black water of, of domestic crises and firefighting is a, a giant growth industry. Insurance in general, you'd be surprised at how many insurance policies are aimed at climate change. 
some of them are helpful in, in ways that insurance is always helpful. And yet, you know, if you expect more disasters, you know, obviously you want more insurance. That's kind of what's going to happen. So everyone thinks, uh-oh, the insurance industry is going to get nailed because of all these hurricanes that are going to come. And, well, the insurance industry is smarter than that. They know about the hurricanes, and they're going to raise rates accordingly and, and grow their market share. That's that's at least the argument I've heard from various climate investors. Then going down the line in, speaking of hurricanes, people building storm surge barriers, giant seawalls, all these things for the big coastal cities we have. One thing about the way humanity is has built up around the globe is that we've built many of our biggest cities around ports. We've built our ports in estuaries, you know, the, where rivers meet the sea, and which are obviously low-lying. So cities like New York, Shanghai, London, St. Petersburg, all these important cities are at particular risk of, of storm surges and sea level rise. And they also have the money to pay for these barriers. So that's something that's being built as we speak even getting into genetic modification of plants and bugs. Plants so we can grow them in drought. You know, Monsanto and Syngenta and others are trying to do drought-proof or at least drought-resistant corn and products like that. Um, others are working on tweaking the genes of the mosquitoes that carry dengue fever and malaria so they can't get us as badly. Creating super-sexy male mosquitoes is the phrase one used so that they'll go out and these genetically modified males will mate with the females. The offspring will be sterile and the whole population will collapse. That's, that's something that's being, hopefully being, not hopefully, but <laughs> presumably being tested in Florida in coming years. I have actually heard of that. And global warming or not, I hope that happens because I, I mean, I don't even know why mosquitoes exist. It's frustrating <laughs> me on so many levels. But the, the thing is about that, and I'm, Actually, of all these technologies, I'm relatively pro-genetically genetically modified mosquito. To hear myself say say that is surprising, <laughs> in the, to say the least. But um, the alternative is a lot of chemicals, generally. So, if I had to choose between one or the other, I might choose the mosquito. Yeah. But I'm. But the argument against it, of course, is that some of the mosquitoes actually won't die, and then you'll have a genetically modified super race of mosquitoes that will be much better at um, doing all the things we don't want them to do. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, now, this isn't an argument made by many scientists. It's an argument made by people who are afraid of, of GM. But, you know, it's, there is a non-zero proportion of these, these mosquitoes that are supposed to die upon birth that don't. And, you know, that, that wakes me up. And I didn't even want, I didn't want to derail you at going through the mosquito thing, but they just frustrate me to no you know, avail. I'd be into, like, a giant mosquito zapper in the sky, too. Yeah. We could get it done. But, you know. They did, where I was and saw this, it was in Key West, and they, they want to bring them in. The Mosquito Control District down there wants to bring in these genetically modified mosquitoes. And, uh, you know, locals, once they found out about it, were not as keen on it. In the meantime, they have these helicopters doing these really low overflights right over downtown where all the tourists are, and they're spraying out this, this uh, insecticide oh. that coats all the cars and like a sort of looks like dried milk. Looks like someone shook up a milk bottle and then it dried on the hoods of all these cars. And so you walk all over town, and like once a week or once every two weeks, there's this helicopter flying low and spraying out all the stuff. You know, if you're a tourist, I'm not sure which is scarier. <laughs> That's I'm never going there. That's terrifying. I can. Yeah, it's, a, it's a lovely place. I you know. I mean, I can guarantee you that's harming people. I can guarantee. <laughs> I know nothing about it. I just heard it for the first time. I'll put my stamp on it that that causes cancer. <laughs> I mean, I, I just know it. 
Not a chemical, apparently. Oh, okay. Vectobac. You can look it up. <laughs> I'm going to, actually. Um, so is there a story that sticks out in your mind? Because I really love the visual of when you were uh, in Canada seeing that. Are there some, that, or, the, or the guy that went down to Africa and the hedge fund manager and things like that, are there some that just stick out in your mind? There's so, because you went to so many different places all over the globe, met with so many different people. Yeah, you've, you've hit upon some of them. The ones that... The ones where I really got to go with someone for a prolonged amount of time and get into their head and see the world as they did were the ones for me that were most meaningful and probably the best stories. So, yeah, flying to South Sudan, meeting with generals and some of the people who are involved in, in the current civil war, by the way, meeting with these generals with this hedge fund manager from New York City and then later sitting down with the guy and eating expensive food at the at the uh, Regency or whatever the fancy hotel was now that that one was memorable just because it was totally out of my own day-to-day experience i don't <laughs> often don't often have 70 dollar breakfasts or or hang out with sudanese generals and another one was in israel meeting these desalination engineers who got their start in the gulags in russia just incredible stories of perseverance and and this sort of techno utopianism that that i don't again don't necessarily subscribe to but it is a, a beautiful thing when you see what these people accomplished. Short story, one of the guys was sent to a gulag in Siberia. He, like many parts of the Arctic, it was very cold, but also very dry. There wasn't a lot of drinking water. So what the prisoners came up with is they created a pond right at the edge of the water, right at the edge of the sea, and they would let a bunch of seawater come in in the fall, and they would dam it off. They would let it freeze. You know, when water freezes, then snow or ice never has any uh, salt in it. It separates it. And then when spring came and it started melting, they would drain from the bottom of the pond back into the sea. And so they'd be draining only the hypersaline water, leaving the freshest stuff as it was melting on top. And they would test it on the way out, and it became fresh drinking water after a while. And that's how the gulag ran. And wow. when that was done, and this guy Zarchin, Alexander Zarchin, when he was freed from the gulag, he went to the new state of Israel and started one of the first desalination companies. Uh, Israel desalination enterprises. And his technique was basically the same thing, except in Israel you can't freeze things without a giant vacuum. Lower the pressure is like lowering the temperature. Hmm. So you lower the pressure in this giant vacuum, freeze the seawater, and voila, you basically got it. You basically desalinated. It turns out this isn't the best way to do desalination. and You can only scale it up so big. But in the process, they made a really awesome snowmaker, which they've now <laughs> um, found a way to sell that to places in the Alps that are melting at the same time as, as doing other kinds of desalination. I mean, I, those guys were so, you know, they, they believed in a, in a sometimes scary to sometimes scary degree in human ingenuity to solve problems. Mm. And when you see that it is inspiring at the same time, you see the, the downsides of desalination and realize that so many of our, our magic bullets aren't, aren't so magic. That's really interesting. Two questions on that. I, I missed the transition to how they created this snow. Giant vacuum. In order to make a, in order to freeze the water in Israel like they were like they'd done in Siberia, sure. they, they made these vacuums. Okay. And so in the process of figuring out how to desalinate via vacuum, they they created such a good vacuum that they could freeze water pretty much anywhere, anytime. And so they realized they just had this perfect snowmaker. You know, the see. byproduct of their desalination was snow. And and so they started selling that thing as the primary sort of primary use for this technology. 
they used it first in a mine in South Africa, a gold mine that went way down, and it was really hot. It was close enough to the center of the earth that the miners were in 100-something degree temperatures at all times. So they would they had this giant snowmaker to send snow down there to cool them, and um, then they used it for skiing. So it's it, it used in Zermatt, I believe, and in uh, Pitztal in Austria. That's the one I visited, and they were very close to winning a bid for snowmaking in Sochi in this last Olympics. Wow. It's just one of those things where you look at it and you, you think, well, is it necessary? Eh, not really. <laughs> no. But is it pretty badass? Like, yeah, that's... It's pre- super badass. Yeah, that is the human ingenuity aspect you're talking about. Yeah, but in and this goes back to one of the, the big things I found in the book is that like that is absolutely great and totally inspiring. And that kind of technology is out of reach for most of the people who are going to get it the worst with climate change. Right. And that, you know, again and again, you'd hit this thing where you're like, we can build a super badass seawall for New York City. Same deal. Mm-hmm. It'll protect Manhattan. And when the wave hits it, it'll bounce off all the worst and land again in Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn and Queens that, that would already get it pretty bad. But then they'll get an extra two feet of storm surge. You know, that's a one way of looking at all these technologies is that, you know, who can afford them? Dengue fever. It's one of the reasons they're doing these genetically modified mosquitoes. We were worried about that in malaria during the Vietnam War because it was affecting our troops. And a lot of the research on vaccines for that has since died, is only being picked up now that these, uh, now that climate change and other factors may be causing the spread of these things again. So it's, it's really interesting what the rich can afford to deal with climate change. I think a lot of the conversations like, oh, we'll adapt to it. You always hear that for those who believe in climate change but don't want to do anything about it. They say, oh, we'll adapt. We've always adapted. And it's true, but you have to you have to ask who we are. Yeah, that's a good point. We've always adapted. Well, yes, but if a meteor hit, we're not adapting. You know, the dinosaurs didn't for the most part. So, <laughs> but you know, and and it's I've never thought. Obviously, I haven't thought about a lot of these things, but specifically, I haven't thought about how climate change will really increase that that gap between the haves and the have-nots. Like we need one more thing to help. <laughs> you know, speed that up. It's, it's this, and that's just another, it's just frustrating. Yeah. Well, there was interesting, I met one of the, in Bangladesh, I met one of the leading climate scientists there who, who had an interesting proposition he wanted me to bring back to America. And it was that we figure out how much is climate change, how many people is climate change going to push out of Bangladesh and and estimates, or maybe they'll lose 15% of their land mass and how many millions of people will be pushed out of the country because of that? And then you look at, so whose emissions are responsible for that? You could do a sort of rough estimate, and then you could decide which country or which countries should take how many Bangladeshis as refugees based wow. on that. <laughs> really, yeah. really funny. You said, you know, so you might find that we need a sort of a new Bangladesh somewhere in Texas. We'll just claim that as our <laughs> own because you created this. Interesting concept, to say the least. It is an interesting you know, concept and another way to look at it. So I, I really appreciate it. And the book, again, is Windfall, The Booming Business of Global Warming. I Before we let you go, I was wondering if you know what's next on your plate. I mean, given the type of research you've done and journalism you've done, picking out these really cool topics, do you know what might come next? I'm working on another book idea that is very nascent. And I've just started a cooperative of journalists modeled on the great photo cooperatives. We're calling ourselves DECA. And it does, we're basically uh, taking out the middleman and getting a bunch of award-winning journalists and pushing out our own stories, publishing them ourselves, 
putting them out in an app and uh, eventually audiobooks as single sort of short books. So basically trying to sell one-off articles, and we've got you know Pulitzer finalists, National Magazine Award finalists, people based on three or four continents and counting. And so that that's just launched the last month. And I'm going to write a little bit about climate science and climate change in this, and I'll write about totally different topics too. I love that. I, I love the democratization of writing to some degree. And is is the reasoning behind that to take some of the power away from these unnecessary middlemen? A little bit. It was not. It was not entirely born out of frustration with magazine writing, but but more the opportunity to yeah to take the power into our own hands. And sure. and one thing you find as a as a writer is that if you've done it for long enough, you're like you, you say to yourself, you know, I know what I know. This is a good story, and and yet if you can't convince an editor, usually in in New York, to say yes, then you're stuck, you know, paying out of pocket all the expenses. Right. And so in one. And, and that's harder and harder to do uh, to convince any editor that a foreign story is important, that it's important to go fly you someplace and spend thousands of dollars in, on that. So we're we're trying to figure out a way to pay for our reporting to get ourselves there and then hoping that people will want that kind of reporting that is being cut back on enough to buy the stories. So that's, that's the idea. We'll see how it goes. Do you see any way of following the um, crowdsourcing model for this? Well, we we uh, raised not a huge amount on Kickstarter, but we just finished a Kickstarter campaign last month, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. And what about on a per-story basis? Would that be too difficult? We've thought about that, yeah, fund fund specific things. Yeah. It might it might not be too difficult, but it would have to be a really big story to merit that we'll we'll see how it goes. We're mm-hmm. we're in uh we've only done two stories so far and we're we've been public for about, you know, 40 days and we're still just just got the Kickstarter money in our bank account yesterday, so we'll see. Oh wow! No, that's great. Congratulations on that. I was yeah. unaware, but I, I just went to your website and and opened it up, and we're going to look into that more. It's really cool. Um, and that is at decastories.com. So, that's right. um, is there anywhere else that you want to let our listeners know you write about, or you know, places you write and websites they can check out as you continue sure. along um, this journey? Well, my own is mckenziefunk.com. That's M C K. E N Z I E F U N K dot com and then Deca Stories, D E C A S T O R I E S dot com. Those are the two for now. Awesome. Well, All right. Mackenzie, Thanks. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Mackenzie Funk. I know I enjoyed listening to it through the editing process. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to sit down with Chris during this, but he held down the fort and asked Mackenzie some amazing questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and tweet at us at smartpeoplepod or at Mackenzie at Mackenzie Funk and just have a conversation with us. We love having conversations with the listeners. And don't forget that you can pick up Mackenzie's book, Windfall, The Booming Business of Global Warming, on Amazon or any of your local bookstores. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review and rating on there. It truly helps out the show. It really does ensure that we can keep getting top caliber guests for the show. So please keep that up. Our email is smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. See you guys next week.